my first Easter weekend, so I uh, <laughs> want to make sure that I'm coming in at the right time. <laughs> I'll ask you to turn with me to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. We will be considering John 18 and 19, and we will be walking through the story of the arrest, trial, and crucifixion of Jesus. So I don't, I'm not going to read the text right now because that will give away the story. I want us to be able to walk with John through the events that led to the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. As, and it will be in part, as part of our reflection to prepare our hearts and minds to celebrate the Lord's table. And as I think of celebrating the Lord's table, um, I realize it sounds very strange, even a bit morbid, to worship a man whom the Romans debased and whom he's, his own people rejected. In fact, it sounds disgusting to even have a service remembering that event. There seems to be no glory in a crucifixion. However, the Apostle John points us to the glory of Christ's cross. The whole Gospel of John is meant to orient us to the glory of the cross of Jesus Christ. He begins the Gospel with a prologue. And in that prologue, he says this in verse 14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And there's some mystery running through the Gospel of John. How is this glory manifested? John begins to unfold that mystery by telling us about seven signs that Jesus performed. And if you've read the Gospel of John, you would probably know what they are. He turns water into wine. He heals the nobleman's son. He heals the invalid who had been bedridden for 38 years. He feeds the 5,000 men plus maybe two or three times the number of women and children. And then he walks on water. And then in John chapter 9, he heals the blind man. And then in John 11, he raises Lazarus from the dead. These form part of what is called the book of signs. But as far as John is concerned... They are but glimpses of the glory of Jesus. 
The question still runs, where and when is Jesus glorified? Now, Jesus himself answers that question in John chapter 12. After his triumphant entry into Jerusalem to the shouts of the multitude singing Hosanna, Jesus declares in John chapter 12, verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. But there is a twist. He says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. If you were paying attention to the reading of Isaiah, you will realize that Jesus is using the language of the suffering servant of Isaiah 52.13. And in case you miss the illusion, Jesus himself declares in chapter 12, verse 32, and I, when I... Uh, it, um, he, John explains, he said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. See, strange though it may seem to you and me, as far as Jesus was concerned, the hour, the moment of his glorification, when he revealed his greatness to all and sundry, was the moment of his crucifixion. And John, in his gospel, is challenging us to see the cross from Jesus' perspective. And so this morning, I invite all of you to allow the interpretation of John to challenge our standards and values. So John chapter 18, John's description of Jesus' passion is meant to show that it was the climax of a life spent submitting to the Father's will. And you see it in the way Jesus is arrested. As the soldiers of the Sanhedrin come to arrest him, you will note that Jesus is not hiding. Jesus actually deliberately went to the Garden of Gethsemane knowing that Judas knew where it was. It was the place, we are told, on, in verse 1. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now, Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. And as the soldiers approached, Jesus didn't shy away from them. In fact, he takes the initiative and he approached them. We are told in verse 4, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, referring to the soldiers, who is it you want? And they tell him, well, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am he. And that revelation of himself, I am he, echoes the Old Testament language of I am. 
And John describes the response of the soldiers in verse 5. They drew back and fell to the ground. Imagine a band of maybe 40, 50 soldiers so overwhelmed by the majesty of Jesus' declaration, I am He, that they all get knocked over. It is a moment of comic relief. But Jesus does not try to escape. You can imagine Jesus standing there, waiting as all of them are knocked out. You ready? <laughs> and they, as they get up, he tells them, let my disciples go. And he says this, verse 8, Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. At his arrest, Jesus was keeping his word to his father. And he would not escape. In fact, when Peter tried to defend him by cutting, drawing his sword and cutting off the ear of one of the servants, you notice how, Peter, how Jesus responds in verse 11. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup? The Father has given me. Therein lies the glory of Jesus. And when we speak of the glory of Jesus, we are speaking of the goodness of Jesus on display. That's what glory is. Goodness on display. But the paradox of John's account is that Jesus manifests the glory of God in humble servanthood. And it challenges our expectations, challenges our standards, because we think glory is found in demanding our rights, that glory is found in getting our own way. But here we find Jesus displaying His glory by giving up His rights in order to obey His Father. Now, after his arrest, Jesus' disciples abandoned him. Peter, who had been willing to fight for Jesus, would deny him not once, not twice, but three times. And yet, Jesus is not a helpless victim of circumstances. John's account tells us that Jesus is in absolute control. We come to chapter 18, verse 19. Annas, who is the high priest emeritus, is trying to get Jesus to incriminate himself when he asks him about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus responds of saying, I have spoken openly in the world. I always taught in synagogues, verse 20. Or at the temple where all the Jews come together, I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Surely, 
Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. This was a demand for witnesses. Jesus, in answering that way, is asking for a trial. He has turned the tables on Annas. Annas is trying to, inc- to get Jesus to incriminate himself. Jesus demands witness testimony. And when one of the officials standing nearby slaps Jesus in verse 22, the question that Jesus asked, if what I said, if something I, if I said something wrong, testify as to what is wrong, but if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Exposes the proceedings to be a farce. And you know that because we are told that Annas doesn't answer. He merely sends Jesus bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And we understand why Annas had no answer, because Jesus had done no wrong. In fact, if you compare John's account with Matthew's account, you will notice that John does not bother to describe the Sanhedrin trial. He jumps ahead to Peter's denials, and then after that, to Jesus before Pilate. It's not because John was trying to save papyri. John was actually making a statement by deleting, by omitting the trial. It was his way of saying that the Sanhedrin trial was a kangaroo court. You see, the Sanhedrin had already decided beforehand, before Jesus had even entered Jerusalem, that Jesus had to die. And you know that. Look at chapter 18 and verse 14. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. But here's what you need to realize. If you've been following John's account, you will realize that it was Jesus himself who had pushed the Sanhedrin into that step by raising Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. The point John is trying to make is that Jesus was in total control of what was going on. His arrest, his trial was in response to Jesus' actions. Jesus was moving the action along. Now, the Jews wanted to kill Jesus. But they could not afford to allow him to be a martyr. They needed to discredit him. And that's why he had to be crucified. Because for the Jews, anyone who is hung on a pole is under God's curse. They wanted him to be accursed, they wanted him to be shamed. And John, in chapter 18, verse 28, exposes their hypocrisy. 
You notice what it says in verse 28. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. You notice? They have no qualms over putting Jesus to death because he was an inconvenient opponent. But they were scrupulous to avoid ceremonial uncleanness so that they could eat the Passover. Now, the Jews have no love for Pilate. They hate him. But they need him in order to crucify Jesus. Look at verse 31, uh, 30 and 31. See, Jesus, uh, Pilate comes out to them and asks, what charges are you bringing against this man? Verse 30. You notice the equivocation. Well, if he were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. Non-responsive. Pilate said, well, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. But notice the, la the, the next verse. The Jews don't know it. Pilate doesn't know it. But this took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Even here, Jesus is still in control. So Pilate thinks he's putting Jesus on trial. He asks him, are you the king of the Jews? But again, Jesus turns the tables and puts Pilate on trial when he asks him in verse 34, is that your own idea? Or did others talk to you about me? Pilate is put on the defensive. So he says, well, you, am I a Jew? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What, what is it you've done? And then Gen Jesus talks about the nature of his kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world. If I were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. Your words, not mine. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So that Pilate is being put on trial. Pilate, and, and more than that, Pilate is actually being challenged by Jesus. When he says, everyone on the side of truth listens to me, it is an invitation to Pilate to submit to Jesus. It's interesting, isn't it? Were we in, in Jesus' place, how would we be acting? I was discussing this with, with a few people, and one of them said, you know, if, if I were in Jesus' place, I'd be defending myself like a trapped raccoon. I'd be out fighting, desperately. And yet that is not Jesus, is it? 
humbly, Jesus proclaims the truth and even offers Pilate salvation. Sadly, Pilate rejects Jesus by saying, what is truth? And then he goes out. He offers to release Jesus. But instead, the Jews demand the release of Barabbas, who, John notes, participated in an uprising. And at that point, you realize neither the Jews nor Pilate are really concerned for justice, are they? The Jews sent Jesus to Pilate because he's supposedly a revolutionary. He claimed to be king of the Jews. And yet they ask for a known revolutionary who had participated in an uprising. On the other hand, Pilate himself isn't concerned for justice. He just wants to embarrass the Jewish leaders. He wants to rub his power in their face. You want him crucified? Well, guess what? You're going to have to go through me. And so to conduct the trial, he has to go in and out to talk to Jesus and then outside to talk to the Jews. That does two things. First of all, the Jews are functionally cut off from the revelation of who Jesus is because only Pilate hears Jesus' side. Their minds are made up anyway. But that also does something else. And I am indebted to the scholar named Gary Burge for this insight. The, in, the going in and out of Pilate creates what is called a chiasm. If you could show that. Yes, thank you. You know that progression? You see that progression? Outside, inside, outside, inside, outside, inside, outside. That is a literary device that ancient writers use because during those times, there were no all caps or bold face or underlining. They had to use literary structures such as a chiasm. And the goal of it was, would be to highlight what is in the middle, what is in the center of that crisscross pattern. And in this case, John highlights that time when Jesus is flogged and mocked by the soldiers who mock him as king. And John is making a statement here to you and me. The soldiers did not know it, but they spoke more truthfully than they'd imagined. They mocked him as king. But the reality of it is this was the king. And so Pilate, we are told, rejects the charge of treason and again tries to free Jesus. So the charge of treason doesn't stick. Now the Jews try the charge of blasphemy. Chapter 19, verse 6. Uh, verse 7, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. Now, 
you need to understand, Pilate is a superstitious Roman. In their belief system, the gods would come down to earth and have children with women, human women. So when he heard that Jesus claimed to be a son of God, he's thinking Hercules. He's thinking demigod. And then he's thinking, oh goodness gracious, I just had a son of God flogged. And if he complains to his daddy, I'm in serious trouble. And so Pilate goes in and asks Jesus, where do you come from? But you'll find that we are told that Jesus does not answer. You see, when Pilate had retorted, what is truth? He revealed his heart. He revealed his unwillingness to accept the truth. And so Jesus, just as he has no more words for the Jews, has no more words for Pilate. And Pilate is frustrated. Look at verse Chapter 19, verse 10. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? But then Jesus turns the tables on Pilate again. Verse 11. You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. What's happening here? Ever seen that? A prisoner pronouncing judgment on his, on his judge? No, but that's exactly what's happening here. <laughs> Thank you, son. <laughs> So again, Pilate feels the pressure of Jesus putting him on trial, and he tries to set Jesus free yet again in verse 12. Finally, the Jews threaten him. If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who, is a, who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. And so Pilate responds, verse, 15, uh, verse 14, here is your king, verse 15, but they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Sadly, the Jews' hatred for Jesus revealed their true allegiances. In saying, we have no king but Caesar, they were actually rejecting God, who is their true king. Which is not surprising, because they had rejected Jesus, who is their true king. But Pilate is trapped. You see, Caesar, the Caesar they're talking about here is Tiberius Caesar. And Tiberius Caesar was notoriously paranoid. 
If the Jews reported him as allowing Jesus to go free, despite claiming to be king of the Jews, Pilate would be executed. And so Pilate has no choice. We are told in verse 16, Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. But please understand, this may have been a travesty of justice. But if you're reading this in light of John 12, verse 27, Jesus was actually accomplishing the purpose for which he had come into this world. Let me read that. John 12, 27. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. He was in control. And he was using his sovereign control over all events to accomplish his Father's purpose in obedience to his Father's will. And friends, this is our comfort in this topsy-turvy world that is filled with injustice. We look around us and we wonder, what on earth is happening? And we must confess that we do not understand what God is doing. We don't fully see what God is accomplishing. But here's the truth that we can cling to. We can be absolutely, positively sure that this God is in control. In every circumstance, He is working out His purposes. So friends, we don't need to control or manipulate the people around us. God is in control. So we need instead to cast our cares upon Him who cares for us. And He cares for us so much that He is accomplishing His wise and holy plans, not our desires. He is accomplishing His wise and holy plans even through the evil actions of men. And this is a mystery that is beyond our ability to explain. But the passion of our Lord Jesus demonstrates the sovereign control of our God. And we continue to see this control on display as Jesus is crucified. John focuses our attention on the placard that Pilate put up, describing Jesus as Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Um, let me just say, if you were expecting um, a Passion of the Christ description of Jesus' crucifixion, you will be disappointed because... Look at how John describes the crucifixion of Jesus in verse 18. Chapter 19, verse 18. 
forwards. There they crucified him. Because he wants to focus our attention on the inscription, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And in putting this up, Pilate mortally offended the Jewish leaders. And that was his intent. You see, this was Pilate's petty revenge on the Jews for blackmailing him into crucifying Jesus. This isn't because he had any care for justice. He's just salty. Because he had to do something that he didn't want to do. So he is taunting the Jews. Fine. You got me to crucify your enemy, but I'm going to use it to humiliate you. I am proclaiming him king of the Jews. And guess what? You know what this says? This says that Rome is so powerful, they can crucify your king. I, Pilate, am able to humiliate and dehumanize your king. You see, crucifixion was, Romans, was Rome's ultimate power play. A crucifixion would reduce a person into a piece of meat to be mocked and scorned by all and sundry. But here's the irony of it. Just as the soldiers spoke more truly than they had imagined, Pilate spoke more truly than he could imagine. In proclaiming Jesus, King of Nazareth, King of the Jews, he was bearing witness to the identity of Jesus as the true King. And again, we need to read that in light of Jesus' words. Look at John chapter 8, verse 28. I ask you to turn with me there. John chapter 8, verse 28. This is what Jesus says. So Jesus said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. You see, the lifting up Jesus was talking about was his crucifixion. As far as John is concerned and as far as Jesus is concerned, that crucifixion, shameful though it may be, revealed who Jesus really is. And the fact that this sign was written in Latin, Aramaic, and Greek according to verse 20 to verse 20 is meant to signify that Jesus wasn't just the king of the Jews. Latin, Greek, and Aramaic was the language of both Jews and Gentiles. So that John is saying that this Jesus is king of the Jews, yes, but he is more than king of the Jews. He is king over all the world. And that takes us to the core of John's understanding of the cross. 
he is saying in his account that the crucifixion of Jesus was actually the enthronement of the king. You see, such is the glory and majesty of Jesus that his very person turns a shameful cross into a throne of glory. And the ultimate paradox of the cross is that the moment of Jesus' greatest humiliation was the moment of his lifting up. It was the moment of his exaltation. Where Roman eyes would see only a man being mocked and shamed with the eyes of faith opened by Scripture. We see a king reigning in glory for he is revealed to be the sovereign king of the world. This is the hour of Jesus' glory. He is lifted up and highly exalted. The mocking of men cannot change who he is. And the wonder of this sovereign king is that he used his infinite power and might, his sovereign control over all events, to lay down his life in obedience to his father. John, moving forward in verse 24 onwards, is careful to keep noting that everything happened so that Scripture would be fulfilled. The reference in verse 24 to the division of Jesus' cloth, Jesus' clothes, points us back to Psalm 22, the psalm of the righteous sufferer. The reference to the bones of Jesus not needing to be broken in verse 36 reminds us of the Passover lamb whose, bone, whose bones were not supposed to be broken. John, in weaving Scripture texts throughout the crucifixion of Jesus, is telling us that Jesus is the righteous sufferer, the Passover lamb, and then it takes us to verse 28. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that Scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it and lifted it up to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head. And please don't miss this. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. John wants us to know that Jesus was in control even in his death. He had said in John chapter 10, No man takes my life from me. I have authority to lay it down. And this is what is going on. 
knowing that he had accomplished the work that the Father had given him, he gave up his spirit. And John's account ends with his disciples, Joseph, Nicodemus, and the women, giving him a burial fit for the king, fit for a king. And that is signified by the 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes, which is an extravagant amount, an amount that is fully in keeping with the burial of a king. But what John wants us to recognize is that we need to read the cross in light of what Jesus had said. John chapter 15, he had said, Greater love has no one than this, than that someone laid down his life for his friends. And through the eyes of faith, we see that that is what is going on on the cross. And that is why we can trust this sovereign king. See, the notion of a king who is in absolute control can be scary. Unless you know that this king loved you so much that he laid down his life for you. And therein is the glory of this king. This king uses his power in self-giving love. And one of the enduring ironies of this text is that the two persons most culpable for the death of Jesus are actually the two who reveal the purpose and person of Jesus most fully. Pilate revealed Jesus as king. Caiaphas, the high priest, describes for us the reason why Jesus died. Look at chapter 18, verse 14. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Why would it be good for one man to die for the people? We understand Caiaphas' words in light of chapter 19, verse 37. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. It may not make sense to you until you realize that that is a quote from Zechariah chapter 12. That passage goes on to chapter 13, verse 1. They will look on him whom they have pierced. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Takes us back to John chapter 1, where John the Baptist pointed to Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's why Jesus was on the cross. 
He died for us because He loved His Father and wanted to glorify Him. He went to the cross, dying in submission to the Father so that God, in the words of Paul, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So that as John Piper once wrote, every footfall on the way to Calvary echoed through the universe with this message. The glory of God is of infinite value. The glory of God is of infinite value. Because on that cross, we see God revealed in His holiness and righteousness. Such is that holiness. Such is that righteousness. That it takes the infinitely precious Son to pay the price for sin. And on that same cross, we see the heinousness of our own sin, don't we? Because our sin, our debt, is so great. Only the Son of God could pay the price for sin. This Son bore the Father's holy wrath towards sin. As we sang a while ago, the Father turns His face away because He was the object of His Father's wrath. And He hung on that cross that He may bear that wrath and appease that wrath so that He could say, it is finished. We understand that in light of John 13, verse 1. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That is the glory of Jesus on display before us. In sacrificial love that spares nothing and gives everything. We find that display of glory strange because we think greatness means getting. We think glory exempts us from giving. How little we understand the way of Jesus. So as we close, I invite you as we partake of this supper to worship this glorious King. Yes, it does sound strange to worship a crucified Savior. But it is most appropriate. And dare I say, this glorious King deserves far more. As we partake of the supper that He spread for us, I hope we would remember what He has done for us. Let us respond with Isaac Watts. Love, so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And if you are here and you have not put your faith in Jesus, I ask you to consider 
these words. Love so amazing, so divine, demands your soul, your life.